turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. This morning, we're going to go to a passage of Scripture that you are very, I'm sure, probably very familiar with, a story you've heard many times. Usually, you hear it in December, not so much in July, but uh, there's, a, there's some great missions principles that we can learn from this story. I'm going to start reading in, in Matthew 1, verse 20. This is when the angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph. Matthew 1, verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The angel asked Joseph to do a very, very difficult thing. In such a conservative culture, he was asked to take Mary, who would be pregnant before they were married, as his wife. And that would most likely create a lot of hardship for Joseph, but he was asked by God to do this. Verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So from the opening chapter of the New Testament, we see that God has a mission, God has a plan to save people from their sins. And he is going to invite men like Joseph to take part in the mission. Women like Mary to take part in the mission. He says, Joseph, take Mary as your wife. I have a plan for you. In verse 24, we read how Joseph responded. When Joseph woke from sleep... He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. God calls on him, and immediately Joseph responds in obedience. Now, God, in his infinite wisdom, chose not only to record Joseph's response to the angel, but he also chose to, to, to record Mary's response to the angel in the Gospel of Luke. And there is no reason to believe that these two things happened at the same time. Both Mary and Joseph heard from God independently of one another, and there's no, there's no record of them having, communicating, having communicated with each other before accepting God's call to his mission. In Luke chapter 1, verse 30, it says, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Look at Mary's response in verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. No debate, no questioning, just obedience. Joseph's calling was not Mary's calling. Mary's calling was not Joseph's calling. They both had to accept the calling 
of God on their life. They were, gonna, they were being asked to do a very hard thing. When God calls people to join him on mission, he always requires obedience. God will never, God will never force you to do something against your own will. Meaning, even when we read stories in the Bible, like the story of Jonah, even though Jonah did it begrudgingly, he, did, he didn't want to do it, God still forced him to obey. God requires obedience. And when God speaks, he expects an answer. So we see this pattern all throughout Scripture from the very opening chapter in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, it says that God said, let there be light, and there was, there was light. Later, it says in verse 3, in verse, in verse 6, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water. In verse 7, it says, and it was so. Again, in verse 9, God speaks, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together, and it was so. And through every day of creation, God speaks, and it was so, so. And Scripture records how elements how nature simply obeyed. And we see this pattern go all through Scripture. When God speaks, he expects obedience, but for some reason, we question him. In fact, in Genesis 3, it says, this is the first time we see God's word question, and it's when, when Satan approaches Eve, and he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say? Do you, do you ever feel that inclination to do, do something, that God is putting something on your heart to do, and you begin to question, did God, does God actually want me to do this? Do you ever feel that, or am I the only one? I feel it all the time. God, do you actually want me to share the gospel right now in this moment? Oh, it's going to be so awkward. God, do you actually want me to pick up this phone call right now? Why didn't, why didn't they text? You know, do you ever feel that that way? Or is that just me? Am I just like a, a victim of my generation? I, I can't answer a call? When God speaks... When the Spirit leads us, he expects obedience. We see this pattern all through Scripture. Noah would struggle, would have to respond to God's calling. Abraham would respond in obedience, but he would struggle at different points in his life. We, we see it with, with Moses when God speaks to him out of the burning bush and he says, Really, you want me? I don't want to go to Pharaoh. We see the struggle to obey God's word all through Scripture. One of my favorite uh, parts of the Bible in the storyline of Scripture is where you have three men. You have Ezekiel, you have Jeremiah, you have, you have Daniel, and they're all in different locations 
prophesying to completely different groups of people, and they're all doing the Lord's work in completely different settings. Daniel is prophesying in, in, in the palace in Babylon. You have Ezekiel prophesying to a group of refugees in a refugee camp, essentially. And then you have Jeremiah in, in Jerusalem. They're all doing what God called them to do. And they're all having to say things that are difficult for people to hear. And they're all having to obey. They're all having that challenge, that test by God to do what he's telling them to do. In Jeremiah chapter 20, Jeremiah says, if I say that I'm not going to do what God tells me to do, if I say that I'm not going to preach his word, I can't because his word is like a fire in my bones and I cannot hold it in. I have to obey. If you are feeling that way, if you are feeling like there's something that God won't let go of, that he keeps putting in your head, in your mind, obey. The author of Psalm 105 perfectly captures this when he retells the story of Joseph. Verse 17, it says, He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Don't gloss over that. God sends Joseph ahead of his brothers, ahead of his family to save them, but the means by which he's going to save them involves slavery. God puts this calling on Joseph's life, and the first thing he experiences is hardship. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The word of the Lord tested Joseph, and the word of the Lord tests us. We've been given a mission. We've been given a commission by Christ to accomplish something on earth. And when we begin to do it, there are going to be challenges. There are going to be trials. There are going to be hardships. But God works through the hardships, not in spite of the hardships. We see this in the story of Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph are given what is perhaps the biggest responsibility that's ever been given to any humans. God says to them, take care of the Messiah. Take care of the Savior of the world. Make sure he's fed. Make sure he's clothed. Make sure, make sure he stays alive. He's on you. You got to take care of him. God gives them this big responsibility, but when you read the stories, it would appear as though God doesn't give them any of the resources they need to do the job. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. They're in Nazareth, and all of a sudden, this census, this order for a census is presented to him, and now he has to take his very pregnant wife Super inconvenient time, right? They've got, to, they've got to walk on foot all the way to Bethlehem. Imagine what Joseph's thinking. God, what are, what are you... Like, 
what are you doing? Why, why now? They make that journey, they get to Bethlehem, there's no vacancy. There's no room in the inn. Imagine what Joseph's thinking. God, I accepted this responsibility and I can't even find a place for my wife to have the baby? Imagine how he felt when he grabs that, that manger, nasty feeding trough, and he's doing his best to clean it, knowing he's, he's about to put his baby boy in the manger. God, where are you? No, no resources, challenges. Scripture says Jesus was eight, eight. They went to the temple, and Mary and Joseph offered up the sacrifice of the poor. Two turtle doves, essentially two pigeons, two birds. That's all they could afford. God called them on this mission, but yet there's this unexpected census, there's no vacancy, there's no finances, and even worse, there's going to be death threats. King Herod is going to try to kill Jesus. They were being tested by the word of God, weren't they? If you're following God, there are times when you are going to feel like you are being tested and you are not wrong for feeling that way. But God had not abandoned them. In the very next chapter, in the very next chapter, we see, we begin to see God's plan for their life. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. That is oddly specific. It's not just any star. It's his star. It belongs to him. When it rose, and we've come to worship him. So it's the opening chapters of the New Testament. And who are the... the, the last person, the last people that you would expect to come and visit the Jewish Messiah? Pagan magicians. They're coming to offer up worship to him. How did the Magi even know that the star belonged to Jesus? Well, there's this verse in the book of Numbers where another pagan magician gave an oracle. It says in Numbers 24, and he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor. Balaam was a pagan magician. I wonder if they felt a connection, if the Magi felt a connection to, to Balaam. This is the only possible verse in the Jewish scriptures that seems to indicate this. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Centuries before, most scholars believe 
that it was the prophet Daniel who had introduced the Jewish scriptures into what is essentially the Middle East, Iran, Iraq area. Years before, centuries before, God was working out his plan and his mission. The story continues in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod did the logical thing. Herod went and asked the experts, the chief priests and the scribes, because the, the Magi had come talking about the Jewish scriptures and the star belonging to, to this king. And, and Herod, he went to the people who should have known the answer. He went to the chief price, to the chief priests and the scribes, and he asked them this question. And this is probably one of the saddest verses in the Bible because the chief priests and the scribes, they gave Herod the correct answer. They knew the right answer. Look at what it says. He asked them, he assembled them together, he inquired of them, and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. They knew where the Messiah was to be born. They had the correct answers. They had the biblical knowledge, but yet they weren't going to respond to God in obedience. Instead, they were going to use the knowledge that they had to try to bring about the death of Jesus. Isn't that sad? And for the rest of history, they were going to be on the wrong side of history. People you would least expect would be used mightily by God, the wise men. The ones you would have expected to be there to receive their king didn't care. It says in verse 10, after they left Herod's court, the wise men continued. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped Jesus, not Mary, not Joseph. They worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. My question to you is, how did they know what to bring Jesus? How did the wise men know what to offer the Lord? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, there's only one part in Scripture, only one, one place in Scripture where we see gold, frankincense, and myrrh used together, and that would have been in the temple and in the tabernacle. They were offering up articles, items that were used for worship, items that were incredibly valuable. Gold, of course, was gold. No explanation needed. Frankincense, which I have some here from Pakistan, in Jesus' day may have been worth as much as its weight in gold, maybe even more. Frankincense was probably the most valuable of the three. In the temple, they would have had a, a, a special room where the frankincense was kept in the front of the room, in, in the front of the temple. It was used 
it was placed on top of sacrifices. If you, if you put this, this is sap, so if you put it on top of a fire, it'll melt, and it gives off a very strong aroma. Myrrh, well, myrrh was just a wildly inappropriate gift to give a baby, okay? Uh, it was a incense or a spice used for burial, not the kind of thing you bring to a baby shower. How did they know to bring these things? They had searched the scriptures. They had studied the Bible to know what to offer God. In Isaiah chapter 60, the section of, of, of the Bible, it talks about the Messiah that was to come. And in chapter 60, it, it talks about the nations, the people outside of Israel who would come and worship the Messiah. The wise men identified with the nations. They knew they were not from Israel. And it says this in verse 3. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. Listen to this. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. They had studied the scriptures to know what to bring to Jesus' feet. Now in the Bible, we see stories where we learn that it's dangerous to give God the wrong type of offering. When Cain offered up the wrong offering to God, God, did, God refused it. God did not accept it. When Ananias and Sapphira brought an offering to God, with the wrong intentions, with the wrong purposes. Things didn't go well for them. It is a dangerous thing to offer God the wrong sacrifice. And in an, in an age where we seek God out for his blessings, it's very easy for us, especially in the West, in first world countries, it becomes very easy for us to begin to confuse the comforts of this world with the blessings of God. And often, the comforts of this world are not the blessings we think they are. They are, in fact, the things that are keeping us from doing what God wants us to do. Comfort has a paralyzing effect, right? Start watching Netflix on the couch, you don't want to move. It paralyzes you. And I'm afraid that the American church is experiencing the paralyzing effects of comfort in our missionary efforts. Because every statistic, every metric shows that the amount of missionaries leaving our country, going to difficult places, is decreasing. But God is still on mission. God is still at work. I have one final question for you. Have you ever considered what Mary and Joseph did with the gifts that they got from the wise men? Because I don't think they held on to those things forever, right? I don't think it's a coincidence that in chapter 2 of Matthew, immediately after the Magi come, they have to flee. 
It says in Matthew 2, verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord, when they had departed refers to the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. How did they finance their trip to Egypt? Frankincense and gold and myrrh. Do you think the wise men knew what God was going to use their journey for? In Ephesians, we learn that God is able to do more than we could ever imagine with what we offer him. At just the right time, at just the right moment, God showed up for Mary and Joseph to help them accomplish the mission that he had given them. We're not going to be guided by a supernatural light. Wise men from the East are probably not going to bring us the resources we need. But God's Spirit is active, and God's Spirit is moving, and God's Spirit is still calling believers to go, and He's calling believers to send. But we need to look deep in the Scriptures to make sure we are offering God the types of sacrifices he desires, that our faith looks like the kind of faith he wants, a faith that is on mission for him, because he too is testing us by his word. We are being tested when Jesus told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. How are we going to respond? With doubt and questioning? Or with immediate, complete obedience?